0: to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Aaron Coulte and I'm the news editor at Resident Advisor. Over his 20 plus year career, Ralph Lawson has become a highly respected DJ, producer, label boss, and promoter. And as a resident DJ at Basics, one of the world's longest running house nights, he's also become an important ambassador for the scene in Leeds, the city he moved to in the late 80s. In the years following his relocation from London, Lawson established the relationships and projects that still define him to this day. Chief among these is his label, 2020 Vision. From its base in Lawson's farmhouse on the outskirts of Leeds, 2020 became a key exponent of deep US-influenced house music. The label also served as the launch pad for 2020 sound system. A live electronic music band, Lawson started out of his dissatisfaction with the scene at the time. Although he'd found success with various studio collaborations down the years, the band thrust Lawson into the spotlight like never before. Fast forward to 2014, and although 2020's sound system has now been wound down, Lawson seems as busy as ever. When Ryan Keeling caught up with him in London recently, he was in the midst of the label's 20th anniversary celebrations. It felt like the milestone had given him a chance to reflect, but also to consider his ongoing role in the scene as one of its elder statesmen.
1: So Ralph, um, down in London, you uh, had a party this weekend. How did that go? It was it was fantastic. We do we started doing
2: 2020 Vision parties in 2010. <laughs> we did specialize in day night parties. There's something about crossing over from the experience of being hopefully in sunshine and outside and people dancing, you know, in the elements, uh, you know, hopefully good, they were this Sunday. So they're moving it inside, the light changing. It's just, it's just. I think, I suppose it's, it's, it reminds me of my experiences in Ibiza, I suppose. I mean, it's the classic place I experienced, day night parties. Um, you know someone like space or a dc 10 where you're you're there in the daytime and then it changes and how it just is there's very different things that happen with your ears and and music and and an atmosphere as as light changes I and mean, they're very different parties and they're they're long and people come and kind of dip in and out so we've become known for those and we did a a big one down over at hackney wicker ican studios on sunday it's great
1: i mean do you find that it's a model that kind of translates to the uk because you mentioned um ibiza i mean if you, was it was like a, a smooth integration, so to speak. It's a lottery. It's the okay, yeah. British
2: weather. It's like putting on a festival here. It's you're just fingers crossed. I mean, we're now sat in a very rainy day in London. A couple of days afterwards, it was raining before. We just hit the one sunny day, and it, and it's fantastic. It just changes everything. Um, so it's it's really in Ibiza. You know, you're gonna be pretty much. Sure, the weather's going to be good. And I think that's what they've always banked on, you know. But even that can be charming in an English way that we'll deal with it and we'll we'll throw up a, a hoarding or a you know tarpaulin really quick. And you know, it's happened a couple of times,
1: but we've been we've been lucky so far. So. And I'm right in saying that the party marked or is part of your 20th anniversary celebrations for the label. That's right. We've started a talk or content which is a celebration
2: of 20 years of the label now and we started in january at fabric which seemed to be the perfect place to start for us it was a lot to do with our early years it was been always been a great inspiration and people there became friends as well so we kicked off there in in january and then um, progressed through europe uh, until we come back to london for one of our day night parties and from there we're taking it on to sonar festival next in june 14th and then as the records come out we'll develop it and i'd like to i'd like to go around the world and end up in the states and japan and australia
1: and there's a compilation attached to the celebrations also yeah that's right that's out just after sonar on june the 30th it's 20 tracks
2: there's so many 20 i don't know why i'm drawn to 20s there's just so many 20s but i thought if it's going to be 20 years of 2020 vision we should get to 20 tracks but i was kind of keen not to just rehash back catalog And just do the obvious things. I always kind of look away from the obvious. If it's ever seeming to be the first idea, sometimes first ideas are good because it's your initial inspiration. Sometimes I think actually that's the most obvious idea. So I try and think around it. And if it sits with me and it continues to sit with me, fine. If not, I'll just rethink it. And I was sure that I didn't want to just put out back catalogue. So, so what I wanted to do is I thought, well, listen, this is my opportunity to get. Artists on the label that I dearly love to have on the label that I might not be able to. they might have their own stuff going on. they might be too big, they might be too busy, but they might have you know twenty twenty vision records in their collection and have had some creative inspiration. From us and like to give something back. So, um, so I started asking. I actually asked, started asking nearly two years ago because I know people are so busy. And the response was great. I mean, I really hardly had any no's from anyone I asked. Sometimes occasionally there was like, listen, I'm just, I'm in the middle of an album. I just don't have time. But I mean, in general, people were incredibly responsive. So, in the end, you know, we've ended up with this, you know, amazing compilation. I DJ mix one CD and then the other two are just giving people the exclusive masters and we've got tracks from Ma- Matthew Herbert and Simeon Mobile Disco, Cassie, Eats Everything, Huxley and Citizen and it just goes on and on and on. It's just, I, I really wanted to as well as like have an artist's representation from our history. People have been around at the same time as us, but also new people
1: as well coming up that um, had their kind of fresh new outlook for the label as well. So was it kind of pitched as a take uh, or their take on the label sound? No,
2: no, absolutely not. No, I really, I never gave them any direction or said, this is, you know, don't make something for 2020 Vision. It was literally the only thing I said to them was just make us something, just make us one exclusive track. You can remix anything on the label or just give me one of, you know, your ideas. And so we got a mix. It's
1: kind of half-half. It's kind of 10 remixes, 10 exclusive new They're all exclusive tracks and 10... 10 new tracks so looking back or thinking back to when the label started 20 years ago uh, what was going on in your life around that time kind of paint a picture for us well the picture i need to paint first would be a personal one i mean
2: when you ask what was going on in my life um i just had a very significant event in my life basically my girlfriend and dj partner from back to basics alistair cook had been killed a car crash on March the 12th, 1993, traveling up to gig I was at in Glasgow at the Arches for Slam, Slam Party. And I was actually on the decks when basically I got pulled off the decks, taken to back room, said, listen, we don't quite know what's happened here, but you're going to have to go. Uh, We've got to drive a few. And I drove down through this rainy night down the M74 down to Carlisle and uh, basically surprised them. I got to the hospital when it was, you know, there was still... And I suppose fairly fresh in uh, what was happening in the to to the people involved. There were actually four people involved in the crash, and um, you know, got the information that two people had died. You know, two had survived. One was Dave Beer and his his wife Jill, and you know, one of those was my girlfriend. So I just come off the back of this reeling, and you know, thinking, what am I going to do here? So I, I actually left. I left England. And I went to New Zealand. I just traveled around New Zealand on my own, just kind of really pushing life to its limits. I'd, you know, jump off the highest bungee. I'd climb up the tallest mountain. I'd drive cars 130 miles an hour down these, you know, deserted roads. And eventually said, right, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back. I think it was three months. So I think I probably came back to England probably by June 93. Nothing. You know, I, I shared a house in my f- uh, flat, sorry, with my with my girlfriend. So we got rid of that. I didn't want to stay there anymore. And um, had a couple of friends, one friend was called Fraser Bridson who was also a studio engineer. I was working with at Dock Street Studios in Leeds and we would on, on early material our First EPs actually came out on, on SOMA recordings in uh, in Glasgow again. And I was just walking down the street and I picked up a Yorkshire Post newspaper. There was always a guy, famous guy on the street and Leeds, like, Yorkshire Post. And so I picked one up and I opened it. And for some reason, when you open a paper, you know, it lands on a page, and it landed exactly on the accommodation page, houses to let. And the very, very first thing I saw in a little box was an advert, and it said, "Farm for rent, farmhouse for rent." You know, and it was cheap; it was four hundred pounds a month. And and I went, "Hmm, farmhouse studio, okay, Bing." So I, I went and um, spoke to Fraser. Who had a friend called Carl Finlow? It was a three three bedroom, four bedroom place. Not sorry, three bedroom, two living rooms. And said, so, "Listen, do you want to do, do this? Let's put a studio in there and w- let's go for it." And they both said yes. So we so we we grabbed this farmhouse just outside Leeds in a place which is called the Rhubarb Triangle, which is a series of fields just outside the city, which is the best place for growing rhubarb. It's a strange vegetable with an odd taste um, in the world. So I didn't know that at the time, but so you're surrounded by these huge rhubarb plants everywhere and then this and this farmhouse was just in the middle, up a track and we set up a studio and, and and we lived there. And so the backdrop was that we just, I think the most important thing was that we were living in this environment. And we started making music. So Carl Finlow was very much the genius. He was the guy that you know actually knew how to operate synthesizers, and you know it's it's very different in those days. It was all you know it was it was it was hard to wire things. The MIDI wouldn't work. Some of this stuff didn't even have MIDI to sync, so it'd be very much on the fly through a live desk. Fraser was also a good engineer. I was just a DJ, so I was bringing in records and samples and learning the ropes a bit from, from, from those guys. And we started to make music and then, you know, we had this, we had this music and influenced by all three of us, I suppose. And we were sending it out to record labels and they were going, what the hell is this? I don't know what this is. There's no market for this. I don't, I don't even know what it is. And, and so I thought, well, okay, well, we'll put it out ourselves and, was, and let's see.
1: Sorry. What was this? like? What-
2: yeah. So this was early 2020 vision records. And this was the sound of our influences. And we were putting together very diverse influences from three people. And then a fourth person from Huggy was my DJ partner at Back to Basics. So I was coming from originally a very diverse set of influences, everything from punk to kind of dub reggae, which I've been very much into um, growing up in London and then moving north to Leeds and then getting into electronic music and and house music. Uh, from a DJ perspective, Carl was very purist, still is. I mean, he was very much from Tamita, experimental electronic music, Wendy Carlos, Cannes, Kraftwerk very, very pure electronic sounds. He didn't like samples. He didn't like that kind of rough sound at all. He liked things very precise. Uh, Huggy came from techno. They just loved Detroit techno. He had a fantastic record collection. He really turned me on to the more technological side of music coming from the States where I'd been more influenced from New York by that point. I visited New York and I had the more dance edge, I suppose. And we put it all together. So, you know, For me, it was very, very simple really. It was techno house and then Carl's electro influence. So some people called 2020 vision electro house, some people called it tech house. I mean, early records, I do think we had a a hand in in helping both scenes on the way. What's, What's disturbing is down the line with hindsight and you use a term such as tech house or electro house, it's become so banal, it's become so misused and so far from our intention, purpose, or delivery that I don't recognise it, but I suppose if you could say we made early tech house records, we made early electro house records. But I think what we what was clear was we were we were making a fusion of those influences into
1: these new genres. And thinking about the way that these terms are used these days, do you almost think that new names should be created as the sort of sounds shift or is there a way around it, do you think?
2: It's a a very interesting question. I mean, it's so hard to know how they stick. I mean, what I I do know is that artists fail at creating genres. No one wants an artist to say, oh, I made Tech house, man. That's me. Yeah, I'm the guy. I'm your guy. Um, You know, it's like, it's not up to the artist to tell the world what genre they're making, their music. It's up to journalists, commentators, people that are studying cultural commentators that are studying the music the scene that have an outside perspective that listen to a lot of diverse music they're not maybe so much into one particular sound they're they're the people that are really examining what's going on from a good perspective because they're outside it so these these are the people that, that make up Genre terms. I don't know how they stick. Sometimes it's from a famous journalist, it can, be, it can be a certain article. I do know that some are ridiculous. You know, when we get into stuff like, just not trying to offend any scene, but when we're getting to genres like UK funky, it, it means it means nothing to me. It's a nonsense. I mean, I know that, you know, bass could mean a, a million different things. You know, what's dubstep record? What's a bass record? I mean, it's just it's a, it's a kind of a bit of a, a difficult transition between genres I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with having quite generalized genres. I think as it gets more and more specific, it starts to become kind of futile because where are you going with it? Getting to some
1: Hungarian Balearic folk step. I mean, where are you going? (laughs) So um, what were the kind of prominent uh, genres when you first arrived in Leeds? Okay, so Leeds was getting very split down the middle because
2: there was basically two camps. We basically had Orbit, which was just out of town. First uh, in Morley, I suppose, was the most famous one. It was in Osset actually before that, the previous venue, which is where I first went to it. And it was absolutely techno rave. It was it was techno music. There was a big space. It was hard. It was abrasive. It was lasers. It was yeah, younger, maybe slightly younger and really in your face. And, you know, they were very much having pure techno DJs, whereas I think Back to Basics grew up where I was resident, which I think came from more of a house perspective, but at the same time, Back to Basics has always not quite been just house, because it was promoted by a guy called Dave Beer, who was very much a punk rocker, so he was always still trying to create a bit of chaos, a bit of carnage, a bit of DIY, punk ethic. The flyers wouldn't be your standard kind of nice, neat, factory-style hacienda house flyers that became accustomed to be part of the house scene. Um, they were always very odd, in your face, quite often abusive, shock tactic flyers. And we had a different crowd. We had, you know, especially with Alistair Cook, when he was there, I mean, it seems crazy, but he was actually only DJing there for two years before he died, Ninety late 90, November 91 to March 93. Less than two years, isn't it? 18 months. And he'd, he'd be mixing in, punk records and indie records. I mean, well before you had too many DJs. He'd invite people like Andrew Weatherall, Justin Robertson to play on his floor. I mean, remember it was multi-floor. So it was the basement, the middle floor and the top floor. Ali would play in the basement and he'd throw in like... Belgian new beat records, Nitzareb, Cabaret Voltaire from Sheffield. But he'd he'd also throw in like Nirvana records, um CSS whole lot of love. It's a bootleg of the famous Led Zeppelin, and he'd mix it up. I suppose you could call it Balearic, but it was far more abrasive than Balearic. you know, the Alfredo, beautiful, you know, Cafe de Mar, Jose Padilla interpretation of Balearic that I know, it wasn't. It was, they used that term, but God knows what it was. The closest thing I can say, it was kind of too many DJs before too many DJs, well before. Uh, but on my floor, I played more house, I suppose.
1: And what was the sort of broader context, the sort of UK scene when Basics opened?
2: Sorry, yeah, I got, <laughs> I got carried away in the last question. So to be more specific with the question, so in, the, in Leeds, we had Orbit and... Their crowd that were very much playing techno and basics, I suppose, was more house and Detroit techno, maybe early tech house. Also, what I think you'd call, you know, UK progressive. I mean, labels like Gorilla, bands like DOP, yeah. React to Rhythm, Left Field. So, that it was, I think we were playing these records as well. So, I, I suppose basics was maybe slightly trendier. I think people maybe wore you know, slightly cooler clothes or, you know, straight trousers, maybe, you know, brothel creeper shoes. And then Orbit was very much, you know, sweaty and Vicks and, you know, baggy clothes. So I'm not, I'm not you know, I'm just, I'm just not delivering an opinion. I'm kind of my observation. I went to both. So yeah, I think the, so this split was in the city. So what was interesting about 2020 Vision was Huggy being resident at Orbit and I was resident Back to Basics. So we brought those two scenes together. So Huggy bought far more of a techno influence into 2020 Vision Studio, which was then named Farmhouse Studios because of the farm I told you about. And I suppose I was bringing in influences from from Basics and Huggy did actually eventually end up as Basics resident, but he came from Orbit. So I just very much simply see it as techno and house. We were making techno house records. And I suppose
1: that got abbreviated to tech house. And you became music director at the club, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. What was your? How would you kind of define your approach to the role?
2: Well, my approach to the role was I never actually had that job title, unfortunately. I only, I only actually realised that I was kind of musical director afterwards. I mean, maybe Dave will question that. I don't. I don't think he will. I was very much involved in the booking policy for the first at least eight years, probably ten. Then I'd say I probably stepped away from that role. But yeah, I, I was. I, I suppose. Was I suppose I just kind of fell into it. I was dragged into it. No one had proper roles. We did have we did actually have an office and we'd go into the office in the week. We'd probably get there by three PM on on a Tuesday. But um we did have an office and, you know, we'd meet as a collective, um, as a group of people, but Dave Beer, myself, Alistair, Huggy would come in. I think to actually clarify that I think Alistair was very much musical director until his death. I think I kind of took over the role from 93, maybe mid-93, 94, especially when we moved from the Music Factory to the Pleasure Rooms venue. I think I was very influential as musical direction at
1: that venue specifically. And there's a fairly impressive uh, list of UK debuts that you gave to people, yeah. names like Danny Tanaglia and Daft Punk. Yeah, and Francois
2: Kevorkian, Stacey Pullen, Shade Damier, Ron Trent. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I still think that is... One thing I have, I do think that's one of that's part of my skill set with the label as well. I mean, it's an A and R skill set, isn't it? It's like you know, I do. I think I'm, I'm quite good at spotting extreme talent. I think there's something really special. I tend to see it very, very quickly, and I know that these guys are guys that are really gonna guys or girls. I don't mean, I don't mean just male that are gonna go all the, all the way. Sometimes as people pop up, you know that I think are going to be around for a little while. Like I call them flavor of the month. Um, I can see those guys. I don't always, don't always grab them because I'm I, I'm looking for the real talents, the heavyweights, the, the the people that are really going to be around a while. That's for both label and the club. And so, yeah, I mean, I was lucky with Darth Punk. I mean, actually DJ supported them on the, it must've been one of their very first shows. It was, it was before the lead show, which actually in Manchester is myself and Derek Carter and, and Daft Punk Live, I think, I think Thomas Thomas was, I think he was 17 at that point. And then they'd got bigger by the time they got to Leeds. I think that was the year previously. I think that was more like 96. And I think by 97, they'd already got bigger. remember they'd already really stepped up. I think that was their only club tour of the UK. They did one, I mean, before you couldn't even book them, before they'd gone into headlining their own venues. It was that quick a rise. And we had them at Back to Basics in January 97. And it was just incredible. And do you know what? We also had Goldie playing on the bottom floor. So it was a night with Daft Punk in the main room, Goldie in the bottom floor, and I don't remember who was in in, in the third room. But it was it was something really special, and I got to play. All- 10 till two, or four hours. And then Daft Punk played and um, Tom had his SP-1200 set up he was cutting in. I remember he reworked I Called You by Little Louie, but he had it all on loops on the SP-1200 and he was working it. And Guy was some dropping in some records and they go back to the machines for a bit. And it was really something special. Do you have like a standout memory or a performance from those early days? That was definitely one. If, yeah. I, if, I, if I have to put the number one back to basics night. I, I think that was it. And if you've got 20 years to say, you know, you know, you have to pick one. I I think that was it. The, and the other one, I think you've already, re, you already mentioned was Danny Tenaglia. It was a very, very special time to get Tenaglia. We, we you know we'd really been blown away by Tenaglia. We were going to the music conference. It started in New York, then it moved to Miami very regularly. So we were going to Tenaglia shows before he was big. And it, it was just something else. I mean, we'd been to the sound factory and seen Vasquez, I've been very inspired by that. Tanaglia kind of came afterwards, even though he was not, I mean, he he won't, he would never say that he was around at the same time. But I think as far as his impact as being the kind of number one from New York, I think he came after Vasquez personally, in my opinion, but anyway, um, yeah. So we just seen this amazing show of his at Groovejet. I think one of his real, iconic sessions where it was just that peak of tribal house and those beats and dropping those crazy kind of vocals over the top and then playing like relief records like Kajmir records as well. And then he was very good at bringing in some influences from the UK and it was a really good mix. It was just something that was really gonna work and resonating with people at the time. And so, yeah, we got him to the club and again, I got to play 10 till two and he played two till six. I mean, what was interesting to to remember as Leeds was one of the first cities outside London to get late licensing. We had 6am licensing from 95. So we
1: were already playing long sets, having this all night experience when most of the North was closing at 2am. What's your theory on the reason that Basics did end up in this, what I guess we could say in retrospect is like this legendary status. You know, why did it become as uh, revered, if you like, as it did? Well, Basics started in a very big way some
2: things kind of take a while to build up basics was was like boom sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time and it's as simple as that we've been travelling to manchester to go out because it wasn't good enough in Leeds. We'd been going to the Hacienda, but it wasn't just the Hacienda. It was conspiracy. There was after parties. There was most excellent. There was a slightly cooler, more Balearic tinge to it, run by Justin Robertson and Greg Fenton. But it was always in Manchester. We were always driving over to Manchester. And we were just tired of it. And at the same time, the Manchester scene was declining. There was gangs coming into hacienda there was deaths at the hacienda people were bringing guns in sometimes there was just crews if you know you danced in the wrong place you were gonna get a slap and it the atmosphere had changed it wasn't really that fun anymore and they knew it they even closed for a while in 91 after after a death and so we didn't plan it i mean i'd been doing my own nights previously in in leeds i've been doing joy i was resident in a club called joy and I was, had my own night called Clear on a Wednesday. And Dave Beer and Alistair Cook had come down to Clear. And um, they said, well, we're starting up this club uh, on a Saturday. We need another resident. Do you want to come and do it? So I said, yeah, of course I do. So it coincided almost exactly with the Hacienda shutting in 91. It, it reopened, but it, it shut for a time in 91. And we opened November 91. And so I think it was just very much, we weren't the only people driving not just from Leeds, but from all over the North to Manchester. And obviously if you think of the of the geography, we were actually in the middle of the North, the Leeds is slap bang in the middle. So we opened, Dave got his, I think Dave came with something so fresh and so new, as I said previously, he didn't recreate factory style, Peter Saville design work for for the club. It was very much shocking art-based flyers that with messages on it, you know, dedicated to those in straight trousers and sensible shoes as a dig at the kind of rave culture that had grown up with Vicks and purple, you know, um, baggy jogging bottoms and the kind of look that was, that was going on in raves.
0: I mean, was
1: that seen as quite crass at the time? Crass on our side yeah i mean from your perspective was the kind of rave aesthetic was that seen as kind of a bit lowbrow in a way i don't like to
2: use the term lowbrow at all ever because you know of its connotations but it's it's it was definitely seen as it's actually like a younger slightly more unsophisticated you know, we weren't. Don't we, no, get me wrong, we weren't that old, but maybe we, you know, early twenties, mid twenties, but still older than 18 19 year olds that were probably going out to the raves. And you know, I'd start, I'd gone through that, you know. So yeah, it was. And the second fly, I said, you know, two steps further than any other fucker and I know there was. It was, you know, we Jamie Reed, Sex Pistols imagery. It was. It was just very. The imagery was great. You know, Dave looked great. He was a great ambassador. He was round all the clubs, living the life. Um so it already had a big crew, mainly from Wakefield, actually, just outside Leeds. And so when we started, I think it coincided with Manchester in decline. We were central, we were pulling in people from Newcastle, from Durham, from Nottingham, from Sheffield. People were coming over the other way then from Manchester to us. And we just took the top floor of what was a gay club called Rock Shots on Lower Brigade in Leeds. And in the first week we had, you know, 60, second week. 120, I mean, it, it grew, it doubled, it was exponential growth. And, and so until we'd filled that room with, you know, over 320 people or whatever the capacity was and, and the venue said, well, listen, you know, have the next room, there was one more, there was another floor. So we took that one and then we filled that one. So, well, actually there's one at the bottom. So we took that one and we filled that one until we had, you know, probably capacity for 1500, but it's probably 2000 people turning up. I, mean, I remember looking outside the top window on a night where the first night we had Flying Up, who was Charlie Chester's organization from London. And I think we had um, Rocky and Diesel DJing. It was this kind of thing. And we were just looking out the window and we, you know, there was like a roadblock in the street. It wasn't, it wasn't a queue. The cars couldn't get past. There was just like 20 deep, all the way up the street, up to the, people from Leeds will know, McDonald's is still there at the top of Lower Brigate. And it was, you know, trying to get into our club. So it was, it was a very instant thing. So when you're talking about how did it become, you know, so legendary because I, and I, and I, 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 you know, that's an overused words, but I, I do think it has got to that status. Um, the other important thing to to think about is just longevity. We've just gone and gone and gone. And I think the difference between Leeds and London is London, I think we'd have really struggled for that length of time. It's faster change. It's more driven by fashion and trend, I think, than, than Leeds as a city is. It's very fast moving. There's lots of people
1: there's tons of competition mm. um, do you think crowds are maybe more loyal in north of England also?
2: I'm not sure if it's loyalty or it may maybe it is, but I think for a long time you know I'd be quite blatant. there's less options i mean we were there's other clubs in Leeds, but for a long time it was really we were so different from everything else. We did what we did. it was very hard to recreate, and we we were kind of so big so quickly people were just they knew basics but because the city is what it is people wise population wise people did for a long time stay in their little niche. I mean, orbit looks fine. There's orbit huge. We've got, 1500 people but we do techno there was basics we've got 1500 people we do this and then there was clubs like hard times to say well, okay well actually we're going to do more soulful vocal us house and we're going to get you know frankie knuckles and tony Humphreys and masters at work and we're going to concentrate on that sound and and they were full and you know there was an organization called chaos as well and they turned into soak and you know they did their thing and had their crown and so, so you know there was maybe like five big big clubs but we didn't tend to step on each other's toes. So I think that was kind of a little bit of it, which is not the same now. Now it's there's there's tons of clubs and tons of venues and everyone coming up to Leeds wants to try the next cool night. But at that time, I think for a long time,
1: it was, that's a little bit how it, how it worked. Has the relationship between basics and label been quite fluid over the years, would you say, has one been kind of influencing the other? It's definitely been fluid. There's definitely been
2: inspiration coming into the label from Basics. I'll, I'll freely admit that. I was a DJ at the club. I was DJing there on Saturday nights. At the very early days, it finished at two. When I was still at the- um when I was first got to the farm in 1993, we had a 2am license. We didn't get the 6am license till 95. So You know, sometimes I'd be finishing still packing up my records. So I'd get back to the farmhouse, you know, maybe by quarter to three or something, and there'd be a queue of cars up my drive. There would be cars parked outside, like when you find a rave in the countryside or, you know, in the streets, and there's loads of cars parked up all all over the place. And i and I'd be, I'd get to my house, and there was there was already an after party there, and the decks were in my bedroom. So there was already people, like probably Huggy normally, DJing on the decks in my bedroom with people dancing around. There was people in the studio, in the living room, outside. And I think, you know, it, I was it was really the kind of early origins of of after parties in Leeds was was the farmhouse we had no neighbours the noise didn't travel to the nearest houses it was very hard to keep people out and I'd be kicking strangers out of my bed and you know on a Monday morning and again them out of my room so it was a very fluid injection of energy straight directly into the studio and, and then you know we'd finally kick all these people out dust ourselves off have a cup of tea and get to the studio maybe late Monday normally Tuesday and it, it was in the living room of the same house where the where the party had been brought. And we could have even like grabbed some of those records. Oh, let's take that one on in Tuesday. Literally like grab that one, bring it in on Tuesday. We're going to sample that. And, and that would directly feed into the 2020 Vision music for sure. But what you need to remember, there was a little bit of crossover because there was also a Back to Basics label, which I was running. And that started off to be supposed to be directly, here are the artists from the club, let's make a record. It was much more that kind of ethos. But I think with Basics, it was trying to go bigger, quicker, and I never wanted to do that with 2020 Vision. I wanted 2020 Vision just to be DIY, to be our music. I wasn't even a ring I wasn't looking for other people's music. You know, it was an outlet f- for us. So I think there was kind of a little bit of a one way flow from my DJ and the club into 2020 Vision, but I don't, I don't think it was really coming back into the club from the other direction apart from maybe you could say there was a circle that I play that record there the next week but um, you know there was two labels for a while I was involved in and then Basics basically fell away because as I said I don't I think it was trying to sign bigger acts and hits and then you know when that didn't happen for a while we had you know it was basically it was actually invested in from by simply reds management company in manchester believe it or not and i just remember one of this this meeting me and dave got summoned over to you know it's the first time we've been like in a meeting where there's like accountants and people like that sat there and they said well these figures aren't very good are they you know why have you signed this guy and I, you know they, no, it was so alien such an alien world to us and we were like oh, oh okay uh <laughs> so music is business <laughs> music is a business it was yeah
1: and this sort of a, approach um, you mentioned regarding a and just your general spirit with the label, how do you think that's changed down the years? I don't think it really has changed. I think it's the same thing. I think you basically,
2: AR is an extension of, of DJing. You know, you're searching for music, you're searching for new artists that you like that are going to fit into your sets, your sound. When you find one you like... You know, you get on the phone on in those days and you send them a message these days and you, I, you know, I try and grab them. I try and and, and, and all that's happening now is I just, it's just far more competitive. You know, just people are moving so, so quickly. They've got managers at eighteen, nineteen to talk to the manager now. We never used to have that. They've got their own direction. They've got their own career paths. We never have to used to have career paths. What's what's a career path? No one no one was thinking about career paths. You know, it wasn't wasn't anything to do with it. Now now it is. So it wasn't a business. It wasn't an industry. Now it is. You know, we should tell your family back Then oh, I'm a DJ. You know, they think you they just imagine like a mobile yeah. DJ or a radio presenter. That's what a DJ was. As there was no superstar DJs. There was no way you were going to earn a living at it for life. So it's it's a big thing now. It's a big industry. It's come from a developing scene to a developed scene. It's kind of kind of like a country. You know, you can see its development, and now we're now we're a developed country. You know, we've got we've got technology, we've got resources, we've got an industry, we've got a a,
1: a way of how things work. I'm not making a judgment of if it's better or worse, but that's that's how it is. I was interested to know were you always keen to kind of maintain and I know brands are kind of slightly icky word to some people but I'm sort of conscious that you with like the remix project with like 2020 vision and then like with 2020 sound system like retaining this like level of identity to kind of like bring everything that you do under this umbrella was that sort of a a conscious decision on your part? It was, you know, it, it, all, all is, it's simply that I've only, I
2: only had one idea. I just, have, <laughs> I just got one idea. I'm not, I'm not some uh, I'm not some genius that could just think of the next thing and like a chameleon change colour. I just I just I don't know. I just uh, I think I may be a bit boring. I've only got, <laughs> I've only got one idea, and that was once we had 2020 vision. I just it kind of like. I just stuck to it really. No, I mean, in, yeah. God knows, it's caused problems. Sometimes people are like, What, well, you know, what's what? What's Twenty Twenty Vision? It's a remix out. It's a it's a production team. It's a label. It's what is it? I, you know, I, I don't. I do know. I've confused people with that. Um, Twenty Twenty Sound System was actually very specifically thought of because it was artists from Twenty Twenty Vision that made up the band. We didn't want to call ourselves a band. It wasn't a band. It basically was using the skills of several 2020 Vision artists to perform live. It was all, we, we weren't even interested in making records at that point. It was specifically the goal to perform electronic music live in a better fashion than was being done at the time. So I grabbed Double D, who was also on the label recording as Double D, it was, but is a drummer, I mean, I'm not just saying played drums when he was a kid. He's a professional drummer. That's that's his day job. You know, he's probably one of the best drummers in the north of England, and actually mainly in jazz, not even in the realms of what we know as dance music. And two Argentinians called Fernando and Julian from a group we'd signed called Silver City. um, And they were very accomplished bass and keyboard players. So it kind of fitted in so fluidly into like, this is an outfit that can perform live. We've got the bass covered. We're well, here's some keyboards. Here's a DJ, I'll drop the beats. There's a drummer that will play live drums alongside the electronic beats. And it was specifically to to perform live. I didn't, I kept on seeing electronic music, turn of the century, Coming into 2000, you've got to remember this is the reemergence of bands. You know, dance music is actually suddenly a bit old hat. It's got cheesy. The style press has turned against it. Magazines like The Face and ID have tried to kill it off. It's not cool anymore. You know, there's amazing bands coming through like Franz Ferdinand and Domino is a label. that have got dance influences, but, you know, let's face it, they're more exciting, they're cooler. There's a new scene emerging. And I think, you know, I was very much conscious of like, well, we need to do something to perform live it's it's not good enough there was some guys around with laptops looking looking very bored trying to perform the music live and there was bigger bands like basement jacks and chemical prob they were already there doing big shows don't get me wrong i'm not taking any credit for that but i don't i, don't, I didn't really see just that kind of underground level of music uh, where i was involved in being performed live
1: i mean was it fair to say that you were kind of personally a low ebb with traditional dance music
2: that's a fair point. But I also think um, my, my observations were, were, were valid. I think it was happening at the time. I, I think dance music was at a low ebb. I mean, just look at the numbers. It's the time when clubs were closing. It was the end of the super clubs, which I think were part of the reason that had gotten in a mess in the first place. I don't think it was just, I was a uh, low ebb actually, personally, I was fine. I just had a newborn, uh, my first child, Sonny came along. I was happy. I, I think it was very much a reflection sign
1: of the times. I was interested to uh, read that the some of the early gigs you were performing in excess of three hours. Yeah, which for a a live electronic act, yeah,
2: oh yeah, oh yeah, we're very. How did that work? (laughs) We are very, very concept man. No, it's like um, exactly, and it didn't. And you know, when I'd say that to festival promoters, they kind of go white and 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 look very bemused and say, "Well, you've got forty-five minutes." Yeah, exactly. We had to transform quickly. Well, the reason why. We were playing long sets. Is because I'm. I've always been about long sets. I just, I just love it. It's just. It was just part of my makeup. I don't get going quickly. I'm, <laughs> I like, and I also like to be able to go different places. So I'm. I'm. I'm just a long set guy. I mean, I know it's really become far longer now, as as a general norm. But back then it wasn't. You know, guests got an hour, an hour and a half. So why it was three hours? Because it was the idea of the sound system at first. It's pure idea. It's 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 origins was not a band. Its origins was I'd start DJing and then we'd introduce elements one by one. So I'd just start DJing normally, get the crowd warmed up and then I'd drop into dub versions and instrumentals of tracks or or just literally drum breaks I'd find on, you know, weird B-sides and then Danny would normally come on first and he'd start playing some percussion and he'd introduce the live element and then basically the guys would come on to stage then we'd have bass and keyboards arrive until it had become a four-piece and then we'd play live for maybe an hour, an hour and a half, and I DJ again at the end. So that's why we wanted three hours, because to actually present it properly. And clubs like Fabric, they gave us three hours. They, I mean, they just trusted me. They, they they gave us those three hours. The sub club gave us those three hours. I could do it at ba- in the basics. It, you know, it, it worked on a club level. We, but exactly, then we got to festival level because it got it got some press and it got I wouldn't say famous, but it got it got known quite quickly uh, in our scene. So you know, we only started in you know I think the I think the March. 2003, but by 2005, uh, sorry, by the summer of 2003, we were already getting invitations to festivals. So then they were literally, yeah, we don't they don't have that time, you know, you've got an hour. So we say, okay, we've got to develop this into a quicker format and, you know, we're going to have to come on live straight away. You ended up playing some pretty enormous gigs, right? Yeah, it was really weird. I mean, we didn't even have a record out and we were closing Sonar Festival, you know, and 15,000 people in front of you, Exit Festival, 15,000 people. And yeah, we were playing huge stages and we were comfortable on those stages because it was, it was, it was great. I mean, it was, it was, we'd fill the stage, you know, we wouldn't be that one little dot in the middle of a big stage. Creamfields Argentina was a huge stage, maybe 20,000 people and we we i know we had no records no hits no songs no vocalist even and yet we were playing these big gigs yeah and then we started to make the original material afterwards it came it came second it was it was kind of topsy
1: turvy way of Doing it really? Well, I'd seen that there was maybe an idea that you'd formed in terms of the U.S. market that you actually ended up in the electronics sphere, being kind of quite an influential act. Is that is that right?
2: Yeah, it was really really strange. I mean, we were just at a slight lull period in 2006, no 2007, and just out of the blue, I just received this email from this guy Ben Ben Silver. And he just said, listen, you know, you guys, do you realize you've started this whole scene out here? It's called, it's like jam bands. And it's this mixture of kind of like live musicians and electronic music and you know, your album Live at Sonar. It's just this really influential album and you're seen as these pioneers and all this. And we're like, I didn't have a clue. I had no idea. So we got it together to go out to States, got visas, that whole kind of process. And you know, we ended up headlining (laughs) these festivals straight away. And um." And they were amazing. The production was incredible. It was, and I suppose, it still. It was still. It was a little bit like old hippies, like bands like Disco Biscuits. I don't know if you know this guy. I mean, no one, no one hardly knows them. They're they're huge. They're like this this band Fish. I mean, this one of these massive old kind of bands. I suppose came out after the kind of Grateful Dead scene of just playing at these kind of happenings, you know, to very high people. I suppose, and they'd play these long psychedelic sets. And I think it is that that kind of. I, th- I think the lineage had come from there and the older generation, but then the whole younger generation were actually, you know, wanting electronic beats. And so the festivals were very much like that. They'd have these big kind of bands from like Disco Biscuits and then there'd be other stages where it was more electronic. And we fitted straight into that because we were playing live and and they were, you know, they were very nice places with very nice people. And we went, you know, we were big there immediately and it didn't seem to matter that you had hardly any records out there because it was all about the live recordings anyway.
1: I mean, do you feel like this particular marriage between uh, DJing and like live performance is in a way an underexplored medium format? I think it's still
2: really underexplored. I mean, I had to stop Twenty Twenty Sound System in 2013. It was 10 years. I Had to make the decision. I'm very bad at stopping things. I mean, the thing about me is I I, I go on forever. You, you set me set me off, and I just that's it. I'm just I'm off. I'm just off in that direction. <laughs> I, I, I'm not a I'm not a one of these kind of chop and change type of people. You know, I've been resident at back to basics for over 22 years. I've done Twenty Twenty Vision for 20 years. This year, you know, I tend to. I tend to just run and run. And I think 2020 sound system, but it got to a point when uh, we had visa issues with Julian's wife. She was Colombian. They wanted to move back to South America. And it's like a long distance relationship, you know, 6,000 miles apart, not even jamming together, not even hanging out together, you know, and in um, I think Fernando's the most idealistic out of all of us. He was like, yeah, man, we can still do it. We'll play in the summer. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it just doesn't really work like this. You could have, it's all or nothing. It's, It's incredibly competitive to get your band into festivals. And, you know, of course they want the hot thing and who's happening and, I think it got to the point when we didn't have management. There wasn't that push there. And also I was really awa- already aware at that point very, very clearly, early 2013, that 2020 Vision was going to be 20 years old the next year. I already had the idea for the content album then. And I wanted to start on that. I wanted to focus on that. I suppose I was making the decision, well, listen, I've done my label since 1994. I've done the band since 2003. Well, I've I got to make a choice. I've only got so much time and I-, I chose to concentrate on the label. And the other part of the decision was very much that, I just wanted to really go back and just to push myself as a DJ and see where I could go. I was, in my mind, I was, I could still be, you know, DJ Ralph Lawson, I could still be part of the 2020 sound system, but in the, in the public perception, it doesn't work like that. It's not, it's, you know, you're in that band or you're not. So you, you have to make these kind of decisions to publicly say, okay, that stopped, now I'm doing this.
1: Yeah, I see. I mean, do you think that you're talking about like focusing, refocusing on DJing? Are you someone who kind of like reassesses and reappraises on an ongoing basis, kind of what you're doing and what you're playing and how you're approaching it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm a very thoughtful. I'm, you know, I, I, I maybe I overthink things too much. I definitely think very deeply about everything <laughs> too much. So I, so I get in a bit, of, you know, I normally come out with the right decision if I, you know, just kind of sleep on it a little bit, but yeah, I do, I do think quite deeply. Things matter. I care about things. I care about details. Things got to be done properly, you know, well. And yeah, it does really concern me what what I'm involved in, and it's got to be right. So that that is a that is a fo- a focus. Yeah.
1: I mean, do you think that the way that you play or the way that you select music or anything along those lines kind of, is that continually up for like renewal or has there been like a, a through line for you on that?
2: There's a very, very clear through line to me as a DJ. I don't think I've changed that much. I mean, yeah. I listen to old tapes and mixes from the club. I mean, it's, the, I think I've always been pretty true to my myself and my sound. I mean, you know, I, I come from house music. I was very, very, you know, really the kind of, I've had lots of peaks, but you know, I, I really, really was drawn into that New York sound, and you know, I, I just loved those kind of Merck style records and those those bass lines and you know, those kind of drums. But at the same time, you know, I do, I, and I did have a real passion for for pure Detroit techno. I just, you know, I loved all those strings, and so I think I brought a bit more music into what was very drummy music without melody coming from the tribal scene I, and I always think I brought a little more musical integrity into it I mean, I've always tried to mix in key and you know get nice things going and flow and I'm I'm, I'm really really you know I suppose I'm a little bit old school and I'm, you know, I'm you know I'm quite conscious about programming I like you know I'm still very much this old kind of ethic of I like a journey I like things to go places I don't like kind of flat sets that you know I, I like you know a lot of different music and I want to, I want to get that across in my sets but I, I do think as a sound I mean I think quite often you play a record and I, I'm pleased when someone says oh it's the kind of thing that you know Ralph might play I
1: mean, DJ said that to me I think that's a nice compliment I I, I like that And in terms of your kind of uh, changing relationship with the scene and with DJing does it become harder or increasingly hard as you grow older to still feel kind of engaged and attached to the scene to a scene which I guess is um you probably say it's quite youth driven, youth orientated. Like, does that become more of a challenge as you as you get older?
2: Yeah, it's a really really interesting question, and this is the biggest thing I've been wrestling with. When to answer your question fully before is that like, what do you think about and how do you think about things? And this is the one I've really been struggling with. This is the big question for me at the minute, and it's age and DJing. You know, I've been in the game. 25 years and obviously your circumstances change, you know, you're older. But I mean, for me, I, d- I question it every year. And I know I know a lot of DJs do. I know Lauren Garnier, for instance, I, mean, I specifically saw him mention every year, I question myself, am I relevant? What's my, re-? you know? And every year you say yes, you continue. So the, the key word becomes relevance. You know, this, this is the buzzword. And it annoys me to an extent actually, because it's very much the thing that kind of Radio 1 will use, it's like, you're not relevant anymore. I mean, I know th- this is exactly, this is not just me guessing, but I know from people in stations and in the industry will say, we've just had this meeting and they've basically said, here's our demographic. It's 16 to 24. Therefore, these acts, tick, 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 are no longer relevant because they're past this age. And I think this is an incredibly, malformed idea and, and wrong. It's not, it's not correct. Best example of this is where I went on Friday night. I went to see Prince. Okay. Here's a guy who's 55 plus. Does he look much different? No, certainly not from 50 meters away from where I was, maybe a hundred meters away. <laughs> Can he still move like a motherfucker? Yes. He's amazing. Has he still got the energy? Yes. Can he perform live? Can he sing? unbelievable. Do his songs sound as good as they did in 1983? Yes. You know, so when you're looking at the great artists, these are the people who are going to do it for life. This is not, you know, we're not, what are you going to do now? There's no like the Adonis record. There's no way back. This is our lives. This is what we do. This is our jobs. But, you know, I've always struggled with the idea that it is a job. You know, for me, the DJing is still fun. I I will never get bored. And I'm, I, I, for sure, if I live hopefully to my 80th year, I'll be there enjoying playing music to to whoever's going to listen. This is kind of a little bit more. I feel at the minute, the powers that be kind of like tick off relevant, not relevant. And I I, don't get me wrong. It's massively important that fresh people come through, that young people come through and I support them on the label. I'm going to bring them through. I'm going to get them on at my parties. I'm going to sign them. It's really, really important that the ideas are new and they're coming from different places. But for me, I love DJs with experience. When you've got a real record collection, it's like if I was a manager, who am I going to take into the World Cup? Do I want my central defender to be a new kid? No, I don't. I want someone with experience because they're going to play in a big game situation. They've done it before. They need to know how to handle it. It's a big pressure. It's not the same as playing in your bedroom. You have to build it up. You have to build that experience up. You have to build your record collection up. And don't get me wrong, some people are unbelievably good at doing that quickly. It amazes me to see how much some young DJs trawl through old records and the knowledge is incredible. I I think someone like Ben UFO is is astounding at his knowledge he's picked up with his record collection. They've actively gone and found all these old records. I'm like, wow, I remember that record, but actually I've not been playing it. But I used to. I love that when I hear someone play it makes me go and grab it from my collection i've got the record still sometimes they play things to be honest i'm like you know what actually that was really overplayed at the time and i don't want to hear that again but they don't you know so there's different ways of this bringing out old record cult and fashion this that's happening a lot of the minute. i don't want to look back um i'm always looking for new material i'm constantly practicing people don't you know maybe you don't realize i i practice my chops you know the malcolm gladwell ten thousand. Our rule. I practice every week. If there's a gig, I'll prepare for it. You know, fail to prepare, prepare to fail is one of the very best things you can tell any aspiring DJ. So I'm, I'm there practicing, I'm there bringing fresh new music. I've got the energy and you know, and with all due respect, I'm still better than most. So it's like, you know, until I feel, you know you ask yourself that question, that Lauren Garnier question every year, am I still relevant? And you know, your answer, You know, to yourself is what matters, not what programmers at Radio 1 tell you or even some, some sections of the media will tell you. You know, it's your belief in your own relevance.